Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Long Monday Podcast. I'm your co-host for this episode, Mike Kane, once again. And joining with me is my other co-host for this episode, Jason Adams. How you doing, Jason? I'm hanging in there, Mike. I'm doing really good. Hey, everybody out there. And with us today, we have another esteemed guest, uh, one of our own company members here at Atlantic Stage, Mr. Kevin Ferguson. How you doing, Kevin? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Very good. We're excited to have you here, um, and we're excited to talk about sort of your wheelhouse, mostly when it comes to Atlantic Stage and what you bring to the table, um, which we're considering doing episodes like this more often, uh, company member spotlight, as it were. But we also just wanted to have a discussion of playwriting in general and what goes into it. So we thought Kevin would obviously be the best bet for that. So to begin with, Kevin, I guess what would be best for our audiences is a sort of introduction. And you don't have to you know, start from the very, very beginning, but... Uh, I think we'd be most interested to see how you got into theater and eventually what led to playwriting as a whole. Oh, my God. That is such a long, <laughs> winding, and boring to everybody else story. Isn't that uh, a, a good a good lead-in for that, uh, of course. dear listener? But, yeah, okay. So um, I, I got into theater uh, when I was, I don't know, 15, 16 years old, the, the way a lot of theater kids do, just, you know, started doing high school and community theater and uh, really enjoyed it. So I, I just decided, okay, I'm going to major in theater. I was at Coastal Carolina, not university, because yes, I am old enough to be uh, uh, around coastal when dinosaurs roam the earth. So as I was at USC Coastal Carolina College, the commuter college, for the first two years. And uh, back then you couldn't really get a degree in theater at Coastal. I was there the the last year. The Little Theater, which doesn't exist anymore, was uh, was in place. And Cynthia Hodell, who's Cynthia Hodell Dyer now, married to Eddie Dyer from Coastal, for people who know them, um, um, was the uh, the one and only theater professor at Coastal. And then she left, and Tom Jones became the head of the department. It's a long way to go, but bear with me. So I was at Coastal for two years. Uh, the first year, Wheelwright opened. Did a lot of shows on the main stage at, at Wheelwright. And then transferred to the University of South Carolina for my, my last two years. Now, while I was at USC, uh, I was starting to look around and go. This was the pre, of course, internet age. And thinking to myself, you know, I, I, don't, really, I don't really want to move to New York and do the, the starving artist thing that I thought. I was going to want to do. I, this is just not me. So at the same time, I was volunteering at a shelter for battered women and their children and uh, was doing creative dramatics with the kids there. And it was having a very therapeutic effect. So when I graduated with my, my degree in theater from the University of South Carolina, I went ahead and got a master's degree in um, drama therapy which at the time, USC, they, they don't have a drama therapy program, but you could sort of craft your own master's degree. I don't think you can do it anymore. But I took all of the courses from graduate psychology, nursing, uh, psych nursing, counseling, and cobbled together a drama therapy degree and got out and became a licensed counselor and drama therapist. And for 10 years, I was a, a drama therapist um, in South Carolina, in uh, the upcountry in York near Charlotte. And and while doing that work for 10 years, I was working with traumatized children and their families. I I I I exceptionally burnt out, uh, burnt to a crisp, and um didn't want to do that anymore after 10 years. It was it was grueling. So I I I became I became a teacher. 
And when you're a teacher, you have everybody goes summers off, but you get paid for to work nine months out of the year, but they pay you for 12 months. And so you, you have three months where you're getting paid, but you're not working. And I started to write plays and, uh, and, and writing, just writing plays during my summers off, uh, after having been a teacher, after having been a drama therapist, I started to go, you know, I really, I really sort of like this and I really sort of miss, uh, formalized theater. So I went back and got another master's degree. I got a master's degree in MFA in playwriting and sort of re-entered the, the other side of the theater world uh, from, from drama therapy, the, the performance side. And uh, I got a degree in playwriting, and I began writing plays and submitting them. And uh, that's sort of how I ended up at, it, at Atlantic Stage. I, I submitted a play to Atlantic Stage. And well, actually, I scared uh, uh, the artistic director of Atlantic Stage very badly because he thought I was a crazy man, which I was. Because I, I can tell you, I, I can give you a lesson in how everything not to do once you've written a play to submit a play. I did. And I still got produced. So, hey, I did it all wrong. And that is I wrote my I wrote a draft of my very first play um, and A Thing with Feathers and uh, submitted it to Atlantic Stage. But I just I just by submitting, I mean, I emailed it to Tom and Mindy. And then I called him on the phone and I said, hey, I just submitted a play and you're going to want to produce it. And Mindy said, um, it's summer and we're packing the car for summer vacation. And I said, great, but you haven't left yet and I have time to drive it over. So I'm 100% certain that she was like, we have a crazy person who wants to give us a play and I just want to go camping. I do love the but, confidence though. But yes, yes. So I drove it over and um, um, nothing, nothing happened. For a year, until, <laughs> until finally, uh, uh, someone—I uh, think it was Marge Mitchell, who was the the at the time the managing director—found the script and and went, "Hey, we should we should contact Kevin and we should produce this play." And by the time that I was contacted about that play, dear listener, who may be going, but but that's not the pl- first play that that Atlantic Stage did because because I've been here and they did Child's Play. It was like by the time Atlant- uh, Atlantic Stage got back to me about the thing with feathers, it was optioned by Trustus Theater in Columbia and I couldn't have any other theater. I wasn't allowed to have any other theater um, produce it in the state. Now Trustus ended up going through a change of uh, artistic director themselves and so they ended up not doing the play, but it was still still optioned by them. So Child's Play ended up being the first play that I did at Atlantic Stage. And um, that is a very long and circuitous explanation of how I became a playwright and how I came to Atlantic Stage. Uh, what? Let me just, for clarification, what year was it when you first started writing plays? Um, I, I hate you, Mike, because now I have to think, <laughs> think back to what year was that. It, it, it was uh, not that long ago, maybe maybe 10 years ago. Okay. 10, 10 years ago that I, I uh, wrote, my, well, it may be a little further than that. But so, yeah, I had been out of theater for uh, a long time because I'd been doing drama therapy, which is a whole different side of the world. Mm-hmm. So when you when you were trying to get Tom and Mindy to produce Thing With Feathers, did you even know them at the point or is it just you just submitted to it and not didn't know who they well, were? Well, here's the thing. Um, yes, both, both Mindy and I grew up in the North Myrtle Beach area. Okay. And so, but I'm, I'm, um, 
a little bit older than she is. So, so she, she, she kind of knew me as, well, he's that teenager that goes to the same church my parents go to and that she, cause our parents went to the same church basically. So gotcha. she'd be like, Oh, now we seem like peers, but at the time, the difference between six and, and 12 is very big. And the difference between, I will not give her age and my age seems less, <laughs> less significant. So, yeah. We're going to try and weasel your age out of you uh, yeah. during this podcast. That's what Mike's going to try and do. It's going to happen. Well, cut a little note. Well, I don't care. I'll tell you how old I am, but now no, that I've just... told you that there's a six-year age difference, I'll also give away. That's exactly days. right. So, That's... so angry. So a thing with Feathers was your first play that you wrote. Yeah. Uh, um, not the current version, but a, a, right. a version, a different version of the play. Yeah. It was the first first time I sat down and said, I think I'll write a play. And that was before I went to to grad school mm-hmm. or anything. I just uh, wrote it over a summer. Well, as audiences who are familiar with the landing stages seasons may know, I mean, that was a play we produced. Uh, mm-hmm. We've produced many of Kevin's plays, uh, a good number of them. In fact, Jason and I have been in some of Kevin's plays. We are familiar with the work. And I don't mean to be that generic sort of fan who always asks this generic sort of question because in my own writings, my parents who are my biggest fans, uh, they always ask this question to me and it always irritates me, but I feel like I have to ask, where do you get your ideas from? Oh God. Uh, <laughs> See, I know. What a terrible question. Um, <laughs> that's why he's hosting. Yeah. That's why I <laughs> take the brunt of it. Certainly not from the life experiences of people I know, because that would get me in a lot of trouble. There's certainly no resemblance or any parallels to, to, to people in my life and the things that happened in my plays whatsoever. Ah, It's purely from, actually a lot of it is purely from my imagination, but there's weird, there's stuff that pops up from all over the place out of context. So, I mean, in child's play, uh, uh, Listener, there's absolutely no reason for you to have memorized my body of work. But if you happen to have seen Child's Play and remember the moment where there's a, a monologue Vera gives about a a kid who's in therapy, whose daddy um, bought her uh, a $50,000 horse and then later decided to sell it because it was too much money and bought her a $10,000 horse instead. And, and she's saying, well, he, that means he doesn't love me anymore. This happened. Uh, won't say who, won't say where, but but that happened. That's just a real story, and uh, goofy little things like the the grandmother in a thing with feathers soaks her toes in uh, uh, mouthwash because it softens the toenails, and that's in there because my mother does that. Yes, now now I'm going to be in trouble with mom, <laughs> but she she soaks her toes in listerine. She swears to God that it works, and I like that's going in a play. So stuff like that, just uh, goofy stuff. But no, Child's Play is definitely about my experiences as a child therapist. And uh, uh, A Thing with Feathers is is about various people uh, that I was treated as a therapist and know in life who've, who've had, you know, who doesn't have mother-daughter conflict in their lives occasionally. Just, just, just all, from all over the place. I guess the only one that I can say for a clear cut, I know exactly why this got written, is A Christmas Carol was written because Atlantic Stage commissioned me and said, write an adaptation of Christmas Carol. 
and I've written two of them and I never want to write another one again, <laughs> but I like, I like, I like, I, I like my second one better than my first one, but I like them both. But, but yeah, that's why that happens. It's like Atlantic stage went, we want, we want this. So Kevin, I, I, so basically you're saying you like cherry pick ideas that you think when you hear like a cool line or a cool event, you use those in your plays, but your plays predominantly are sort of just from your imagination. You craft a story and then you sort of throw real life examples in there to sort of create well, well, it. Well, yeah. You know? I mean, but, I, yeah. Yes. But plus also writers in general, I'm just letting you know, people, if you know a writer, they're thieves, they'll steal your life. They will steal your life and they will put it into their work of fiction and they will look you in the face and say, it has nothing to do with you. And they're lying. So except me, it's never happened to me. Very true indeed in most cases. But I, I mean, the, the idea, if I'm looking, thinking back on Atlantic Stages season, if I'm correct, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, um, with Atlantic Stage has produced five of your works, if I'm remembering correctly. F- yes. Uh, five, five of my plays have been produced by Atlantic Stage and, um, and then there was a there's a one act that that has gotten a we've done readings of but we we don't produce we don't fully produce one acts mm-hmm. so five and a half and you know thinking back on the ones that I've seen um, it's a it's a very diverse body of work I'll say I mean you think of something like spinning Jenny compared to a thing with feathers or even other side of the sky it's uh, quite a large breadth of work it's always interesting to see where that delineation occurs um, obviously could be phases of life. Um, I'm not sure when you wrote something like Spinning Jenny as opposed to something like Child's Play, if they were right next to each other or Child's Play was written and then years later Spinning Jenny happened. But it's always interesting to see where a writer's work takes them in terms of their own careers. Mm-hmm. Well, I think um, I think all of my plays, even, uh, even, even A Christmas Carol, which is an adaptation, of course, of Dickens, um, are sort of connected by this idea that and you know when most of the time when writers when writers write they don't really notice that certain themes kind of consistently come out but then in hindsight they go oh oops i did it again to quote the brilliant britney spears um so i think that in all of my plays there's this element of of hope in the end that i i like to give uh, my characters hope to, to say that even even in the face of some things that can happen in your life, uh, awful bumps in the road or conflict or problems with family members and friends, um, that there's there's always hope at the end of things. Do you also think um, I've also noticed there tends to be like a religious trend sometimes in your plays, too? You know, there's always an element of faith in there. Do you think that is part of your hope feature? Or do you think that has come maybe from your mother and from, from like growing up in church together and things like that? Is that part of it? Well, like upbringing there, too, because well, you know, I know spinning Jenny and yep. like and especially other side of the sky. There's definitely large elements of religion in those things. Yeah, I really I think that there's only one play that. Well, actually, I have two. I have the the, the uh, child's play, and the one act play, Losing Sight, which is published in Best American Short Plays of 2014 and 15. If you'd like to go out and buy it, buy Applause Books, Google it, purchase it. Nice um, plug. We like yep. a nice plug. Put <laughs> okay. it in there. Good. Um, I think I think that yeah, there's religious elements in the other side of the sky, spinning Jenny and a thing with feral feathers, and of course Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because I I am a man of faith. Um, I happen to be a Christian. Um, they're not well. Actually, I have I've been accused. The other side of the sky. One of the 
believe it or not, um, listener, some of my plays have provoked controversy among some members of the audience. So um, when the other side of the sky came out, there there was one audience member who was very disgruntled because he said it was it was he didn't want to hear about God. And I was like, well, um, it's about a woman wrestling with her faith, so you're going to hear about God in that play. Uh, it's about other stuff too, but it's about a woman wrestling with her faith. Um, and I, I think that the issues of, of faith and free will mm-hmm. and hope are kind of all, yeah, bound up in my work because they're bound up in me. I think that that's sort of a test to what Mike was saying, where like getting your ideas, it's almost like you can't, when you're writing or creating something, your personal self almost always sort of influences your work. It just sort of transposes on there because it's just part of you, you know? Well, if, if it's going to be authentic in any way, then, then you can't help um, sure. exposing yourself in some ways. Yeah. And if you'd like to see me expose myself, you can go to uh, the internet and wait for it. Not what you think. Um, you can buy The Other Side of the Sky. It is published by Next Stage Press and available for sale as is Child's Play and um, uh, Christmas Carol. I thought you were going to link us to like a Google page with like some photos. Some yeah, no, no photos. Cause uh, 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 unlike Captain America, I have not leaked a photo of my, uh, I got you. Or Jamie Foxx. Or any of those guys. Or any sure. Yeah. We guy. have just gone off the deep end. Here. I know. Great. <laughs> <laughs> if I could reel it back in for a second. Um, Mike's not so. doing his job. <laughs> <laughs> so Kevin, you mentioned that Atlantic stage personally commissioned you for the Christmas Carol adaptation. Um, now, yes. one question that one of our other co-hosts had, who is not here with us at the moment, but Steve Harley wanted to know specifically what it's like living off playwriting. Um, because <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the sort of response. That's the right wanted. answer. That's, that's the, the response we wanted you to give. So he wanted you to speak towards it, um, just uh, in general sense. Um, there's a, a, t- a saying in the theater that you can you can make a killing in the theater, but you can't make a living. Which, which basically means that there are a tiny, tiny minority of people who manage to make a lot of money doing theater because their, their work is widely produced and widely published. And the majority of the people doing theater um, don't make a living at it or, or not a consistent living. So I have made, well, I have made tremendously large amounts of pennies um, writing for the theater. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't. In fact, I think that I have, I have given back, uh, more, more royalties than I've kept, um, for, for, for all of, all of the, and my work has been produced. I'm, I, I, oh, I shouldn't say this because, uh, people who might actually be listening to the podcast who are producing and going, ah, email or call him but it's it's not i of course i support atlantic stage and atlantic stage is a ragtag bunch of theater producers who are really out there for the love of theater and it is professional semi-professional because we're a group of professionals that also work with people in the community to produce the best professional work we can put on the stage for you but we don't make a ton of money in fact, we very often put in more money than we take out. But I, I have also been, you know, bigger bigger theaters than Atlantic Stage have produced my work. And the one thing that I have noticed that is consistent about theaters is that they will pour them out to you. 
they will tell you about their struggles and their sorrows and trying to get people in the seats and and ask you, can you please, please donate your your royalty? And and I am fortunate in that I have a day job that pays my bills. And so I, I can afford to do that occasionally. So we feel like, does that what most playwrights you think has to fall into that? Like even big playwrights? That's why we see so many playwrights teaching or writing screenplays or doing well, something else. Yeah, Actually, because- I have, um, and please do not mistake me for someone who um, hobnobs shoulder to shoulder with Im- most important playwrights in the country. But I have, I have met and had dinner with and chatted with some pretty big playwrights. And um, yeah, they, they write a movie. I mean, you know. They're yeah. famous playwrights. Tony Kushner does not earn a living writing plays. He earned a living writing uh, screenplays for movies. James Patrick uh, Sh- Shaman, who, uh, Shannon, who, who, who wrote Doubt and many other plays, um, makes money off of movies, not yeah. his plays. This is how they make money. So in tying in with uh, – and the thing you mentioned about theater you know, not being the kind of thing you can live off of is certainly the case for theater around here. I mean, every member of Atlantic Stage is not living off Atlantic Stage money, that's for sure. Uh, We all have different jobs and different occupations. But the nice thing about your job is that, yes, you don't truly make the career building money off playwriting, but you do teach it. It's part of your actual career is that you have a course in teaching playwriting. I do teach playwriting. I have a a course in playwriting, and uh, I teach that every year in the spring at Coastal Carolina University. I I also – well – I also teach a course in dramaturgy, which of course I also do at Atlantic Stage. But but yeah, and uh, there's a graduate course in playwriting um, too that is going to be offered. It was supposed to be offered this semester, but then a little thing you might have heard of, I don't know, it's, it's sort of making the news. COVID happened and uh, the world flipped upside down and it changed a lot of things. So that's been put on the back burner for another year. But we'll see. Maybe next year we'll do a grad course in playwriting at Coastal. I assume in the grad course you have students who are, you know, trying to build careers or at least have a strong interest in writing. Is that the case with the undergrad course or do you find students are there to fill a core uh, slot in their schedule, as it were? Are they really there because they really have a passionate drive for playwriting? Well, I actually I very much enjoy the playwriting class because I have two. Well, actually, I have sort of three um, sort of different kinds of students that take the playwriting class. I have people who are not in the theater at all, but are in the creative writing program at Coastal Carolina University that are uh, interested in learning to write all kinds of scripted entertainment. So they're, they're, they're learning the craft of storytelling for performance so that they can write plays, but also um, movies and television and web episodes and everything else that's scripted that, that's out there for entertainment now. And then I have students who are like, I need this class because it fulfills a core requirement for my theater degree, but I'm also interested in all things theater. So I want to learn this part of theater, even if I don't become a playwright. And then I have people who have just taken the class because they want to write a play. They have a story they want to learn how to tell. And so there's been, there's been all, all kinds of reasons people take the class. Do you find that um, some of like the acting students, do they take these classes and sort of get into them um, because they want to learn how to do it? Or do you think it's like um, they want our better roles for themselves? Maybe? Well, <laughs> I don't know where this question is going. But you know, I mean, yeah, because there's a lot, there are a lot of people that are like, well, um, if I tell, 
if I tell a story myself, if I make my own work, mm-hmm. then then I'll have something to perform. And plus, I have that they, they almost all fall into that. I have a story I want to figure out how to tell. With your, uh, this is sort of like a delineated question for my personal take. But when you find, you know, let's say creative writing students who are not theatrically, you know, devoted or inclined coming into a playwriting class, do they often make the comment that they find playwriting more difficult than standard fiction writing, or is it the inverse? Um, because for myself, I've attempted, I have some background in creative writing, but more so fiction and nonfiction sense. And when I attempted to do playwriting, man, it was it was a whole other animal that I was not prepared for. So I'm just wondering if other students have that same experience. Well, I find that that student playwrights have uh, especially creative. Well, creative writing students have their have their own issues. The ones <laughs> that are um, used to writing tons of exposition, who are used to dealing strictly with the interior world of their characters and a lot of description of what's going on, struggle to edit. And the ones that are like, well, what I've always been good at is dialogue and, and I have to work at um, introducing other elements into my prose, go, playwriting, scripted entertainment, that's the world for me because dialogue is what I'm good at anyway. So, um, so it, 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 it's, it depends on where they are and what their own personal style of writing is. And th- I, I have a question here too, because we're talking about COVID, you know, it kind of threw your... Uh your graduate studies class on its head. And I know Mike and me and Steve and Caleb have been talking about doing coming up in the future. We're, you know, especially cause we can't really doing things on stage are so difficult. We're, we're reverting to almost like audiobook style entertainment. Um, do you think because of, as I, you know, it's hard to believe that COVID may not be the only version we get. We may find ourselves continually getting like, unfortunately, we may see a future where we see like these kind of super, super diseases coming about. And we may have to find ourselves as a culture doing more internal from home kind of like performance things. Do you think playwriting is going to learn how to kind of evolve into doing more like that kind of online storytelling versus like live story? I know you as a playwriter, like I hope not, but I mean, I I get that there's got to be an outlet now because I think we've definitely discovered there's not an outlet for it now. There's not as many out there, you know? Well, I think that what, what we're going to find is that we're going to, we're going to revisit older art forms. There, there is an entire world of plays that were created for radio. Yeah, um, radio plays, duh, easily named. And I mean, there's a, a little fellow named Orson Welles who famously did one called "The War of the Worlds," which scared a lot of people and actually caused a national panic. Isn't that fun? We can cause another national panic with a radio play. I but think we have enough national panic at the moment. We have enough national yeah, panic true, to go around. True. That's probably true. But yeah, I, I, we'll just we'll just go. I mean, you know, like you know, listeners to this podcast will will. I've actually had older um, audience members already say, well, "Why don't you just do radio plays? You sure. don't even need to worry about the visuals." And um, there's tons of scripts out there, and there'd be some nostalgia for that that art form. And I'm pretty sure that it will probably that will be um, something that is revisited if COVID doesn't uh, turn around within the coming year or two, if, if we're still in a position where it's not really safe to have audience members sit together, because that's of course the main thing is that, that, that Atlantic stage, there's just no way to, to distance and have enough people in an audience to make the, that space sustainable. Sure. The other thing is going to be the zoom play, which, you know, 
I get lots of invitations to people's Zoom plays right now. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually a little tired of Zoom plays personally. But um, I think that, that that's because right now Zoom plays are just people reading a script. It's like going to an endless uh, round of readings of plays. And I think that, that people will get better at that and Zoom production will start to be a thing of its own. Yeah, people people will figure out how to make it more visually as well as um, auditorially interesting. Just a sign of the times, really, the way we have to adapt to things that are in our current situation. It's true. Yeah. But I mean, when we had, thi- I mean, you can speak to this as well, Kevin, the whole play fest that Atlantic Stage would run every year. It was a it was a time for new voices to come about. And I think that perhaps if we look at a positive outlook of this, it could give way to new voices who think, well, it won't be as much money to produce physically. Now we can just do this over Zoom and just sure. assemble some actors and it'll be a lot easier to produce this. But I think the value of that shouldn't be understated. And I think the value of the Playfest we did, I mean, we're not doing this one year for this year for obvious reasons, but I mean, the, the, the value of having an event, a Playfest where new voices can come about is really something great. And you've been the head of that for how many years? This would have been my ninth year and our 10th year doing the play festivals. Uh, and I think that we'll probably, well, we, t- 2020, we didn't do a play festival and it, it's looking like we won't do one in 2021. Um, we'll probably still be in on, on, on the long Monday uh, hmm. in, in the spring of 2021, but probably come back in 2022 um, one way or the other, either reinventing it mm-hmm. or uh, back for a physical, physical play fest. And that's because there's not um, writers are also sort of in limbo. There's uh, been sort of a hiatus in in lots of things in the theater, and that includes uh, people crafting new plays. There's there's so much uncertainty about when will anybody be able to stage a play. A lot of the people that we're writing are are sort of putting uh, writing for the the stage on hold. And it's, again, you know, we talk about this like it's, oh, this is a revolutionary. It's a new thing. It's Shakespeare. They had, I could actually, I just taught my class so I can tell you that there was like five or six periods of time during the Renaissance period, the golden age of, of theater for Elizabethan theater that they went on hiatus for a year because of plague and the playwrights went and wrote poetry so if there's any rich patrons out there who would like to pay me a lot of money in the interim to write a haiku for them, <laughs> I'd be thrilled. Just uh, just to email me in care of Mike or Jason here at this Long Monday podcast, and I will, I'll be happy to accept your check. So does that mean we get a 10% finder's fee? Absolutely. For that, for that scenario? Okay. I will give right. you 10% of the <laughs> massive pennies. <laughs> Probably Sounds good. A roll yeah. of pennies. It'll work. It'll work. And a little bit. Yeah. So with that, Kevin, talking about, you know, sort of like this sort of massive, this hiatus and like, you know, writers doing this hold, um, I'm sort of taking Mike's job here, but we talk about Holland's, um, the like playwriting lab that you do so much work with. Are they sort of on hold as well too with this sort of thing? Well, and no. tell, I guess tell us a little bit about this too. I just, I just introduced a scenario. Didn't even sort of set up what Holland's is. Well, Holland's uh, Holland's playwriting lab. Uh, I have a degree in playwriting an MFA in playwriting from Holland's university. And for a long period of time, I, I went after, after I got my degree uh, every summer and worked with the lab. I haven't done that in a few years. 
but they um th- no they've they've gone to like many other places they were they were zoom schooling this summer i believe and uh okay. people stayed at home but went to school at holland's on the internet and I, i'm not sh- sure i wasn't involved in that so i don't know exactly how it went but th- th- like everybody else they're just reinventing themselves and rolling with rolling with the covid punches sure um, going back to an earlier point, and I think this might be interesting to a number of our audience because, um, you know, a lot of the audience members at Atlantic Stage, when they go see a play of yours, a lot of them who, you know, have never attempted writing in their life assume this is just the final version that, you know, whatever is being produced here, that's it. It's going to go straight to publishing and then it's over. Right. But is that always the case? It's never been the case. That's what I figured. Um, so. Um... Actually, well, actually, uh, I can't. That's that's not true. Um, the version of Child's Play that was done in Atlantic Stage um, was published pretty much the way Atlantic Stage did it, because it was published fairly quickly uh, afterwards. And then once it's done, it's done. Available at Next Stage Press. Google it. Um, but, <laughs> but. Uh, the reason, well, well, and then uh, Christmas Carol, the la- the second version of a Christmas Carol is the published version, also at Next Stage Press. That's uh, the version you were in, Mike. Yes, yes, yes. And and then um, the other side of the sky had been heavily, heavily revised after being produced many other places before Atlantic Stage did it. So the Atlantic Stage version is the published version. The entire reason <laughs> that I, I've actually had my publisher hounding me for a thing with feathers um, and, and uh, well, not exactly hounding me for a spinning Jenny, but, but asking me when is it available. And I'm uh, the published version will be, there's an entirely different act too for a thing with feathers than what was seen at Atlantic stage. And Spinning Jenny is going to be, I think, a completely different play hmm. by the time it's published. So when you did, I, I know, like you said, Thing with Feathers was the original one you had pitched to Tom and Mindy, and then you moved on to Child's Play. Yeah. Since you said it was such a quick version, that version that we're seeing that's published is pretty much the same version that Lang Stage did. Of which, how many, which it, how many Child's Play, right? Oh, yeah. that's Yeah. yeah. So how many versions did you go through before we saw that version at Atlantic stage? Is it, you know what I'm saying? How many edits and rewrites did you do before the version we saw that was actually performed at Atlantic stage? Did you have several before that? Though? I can't even tell you because it's, it's con- constant rewriting is constant and it was re- being rewritten during rehearsal. That's what I thought too. Cause I was in that show and I do remember like new pages and new sequences sort of coming in. I know Jen plants had a, who was, a, who was the main, character in that show she did have a few changes i think i remember yeah there were changes there were changes all over the place and sometimes when you when you're putting a show up um this is for the listener because mike and mike and jason know this uh when you're putting a show up and it's a new script then you find out (laughs) all of the practical elements that the 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 audience member might not necessarily be conscious of for the finished project project that just aren't practically going to work. Like Mm -hmm. I really have a costume change in a one second scene change. And you're like, Oh, I'm going to have to build some time in for you to change that costume. Or um, there's a different 
the set has to be rearranged. Okay, that's got to happen in in uh, a second. It's like okay, so you have to figure out how to build in practical transitions as w- and keep the story flowing. And a lot of times you find out these things that just aren't going to work uh, in rehearsal. Now, because I think on first shows, now that you've written several plays, is that now? already automatically come into thought when you're writing something now? I mean, I'm sure a first time playwright, I know we're doing like the play festivals at Atlantic stage. And I'm sure when like when Hollins is doing like new playwriting labs, some of the newer ones they're writing, obviously, like you said, they don't have those transitions. They don't have those built in things. Being a veteran writer after a period of time, you're probably already thinking ahead of those things. Well, Does that it, make sense? it really depends on the, the writer too. I mean, there's some even playwriting students who instinctively realize I am writing for the stage. So I have to, to make things that can happen on stage. And then there are other writers because we're so used to um, scripted entertainment for television, movies and and internet that they write um, things that I go, that might make a very lovely movie. Mm-hmm. but you just can't physically do what you're doing on stage with all of those rapid transitions and scene changes and car chases and airplane crashes and um, things that people will write into. And, and again, this is also a, a, a matter of budget. There are not a lot of smaller regional theaters who will produce a play like Miss Saigon because a helicopter lands on stage. Sure. Um, so you, 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 you can do anything in a big theater with a multi-million dollar budget, but um, practically speaking, I'm not writing a play where a helicopter actually lands on stage. But you did write a play that took place on a midway carnival mm-hmm. with a mer- you know, all these mechanics and machines and games and all this other stuff. And I did. I, I think there's a part of it that, you know, does the artistic director or the people who are putting on the show just go, well, it's what the script says to do. So we got to figure out, or is it your part as the writer to go, well, maybe that's not totally practical. Ultimately um, it's both of those things because here's, here's the way that works. You, you can say the theater has to figure it out. They have to figure out how to make it work. And very often this is the case. I, I have had directors, you know, contact me and go, well, as soon as I got your script, I knew how I was going to do this. So I really am excited about doing the play. On the other hand, you could have a theater go, we have no idea how with our budget we could do that. And and we're not talking about, you know, it's not just talking about having helicopters land on stage. I mean, there's theaters that could never produce a classic play such as Peter Pan because you have to be able to fly somebody. And if sure. you're not in a theater with a fly system, uh, that play's not going to work. So things like that, you just, you just have to, to know. So I, I and, and and when I did Spinning Jenny, I was I was going well. I hope they can afford to get some of these uh, carnival games that are in the script. And um, we actually had uh, Vince, Vincent make uh, a high striker out of Dang. a frying pan. Yep. So you can do anything, <laughs> and 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 most of the time it worked. And when it didn't work, you just covered. Oh. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let me tell you, uh, there were some nights where, and that's the thing too, is that it. I, the follow-up question was going to be, did you remove the high striker from the show after seeing Atlantic Stage's production of it? Because if you hadn't seen Spinning Jenny, uh, my character that I played has to you know, land this high striker hit on a certain moment. It was a practical effect. It was had to happen every night. And to be honest, there were some nights where I just couldn't pull it off. So when you see that as writer, do you go, 
oh, this actor just needs to get his act together, which yes, is true. I you did. absolutely say the actor just <laughs> needs to get his act together. He's yeah, well, really was... not trying hard enough. It's all his in, fault. In all fairness, I don't think it was always Mike's fault. There were times he hit the hell out of that thing and it would go four Bleep. inches and you'd be like, what happened? <laughs> And for the listener who doesn't know what a high striker is, it's when you go to the carnival and they give you the mallet and you hit the thing to see how strong you are and the and the, the thing rises up to hit the bell at the top. Some nights Mike was a strong man and sometimes he had not eaten his spinach. There was many nights where I had not eaten my spinach, to be clear. Well, in all fairness, he had to hit it on the third try. So he'd hit it on the first one he's supposed to miss, second miss, third one he hits it. <laughs> yeah. There were some nights Mike would hit it on the very first try. Uh, <laughs> and there were some nights Mike would hit it on uh, the 14th try. Yep. Um, so, you know, it happens. It is what it is. Yeah, but we tried to play it off every night. So sure. it's the we job of the actor. Job. We did a good job with that. I think we did. Plus, nowadays, yeah. you can project everything. So True. Which... That's another thing too. That's something as a playwright, when you write something like spinning Jenny or, or anything in general, and you go and if you saw a production that is mostly just projection based versus a show that, or theater that tries to do a practical effect um, as a playwright, do you have appreciation for both? Or do you always, when you write something, have a vision of what you ex- exactly want? Does, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like as a writer, obviously you would want to see the real high striker and you want to see the real stuff. But if you get the the le- letter when they say, no, we have to do this all just digital. We're going to have to do it all as a, a projection based. Do you kind of in your gut go, oh, I wish it was the other way around. Or do you just sort of accept it and know that this is the art form and it can has to, it has to change based on various reasonings? I'm kind of the worst playwright to ask that question because I'm always happy to go, oh, you have an experiment you want to try with my play? Go ahead. And then sometimes they try the experiment and I'm like, that clearly didn't work. How could you not notice it didn't work? Oh, dear God, oh, dear God, what have you done? Um, And and sometimes it's like, oh, that worked really well and and I never would have thought of that. Like, like for instance, there's a production. I won't say where or when because I really like the people involved. But um, Child's Play was produced at a theater that, that said to me, we want to experiment in rehearsal. And so we want all of Vera's uh, uh, speeches to be TED Talks she's giving. And I went, well, you can, you can experiment. Because um, in my head I was going, I don't see how it's possibly going to work. And then they went ahead and did it in performance too. And, and no, it didn't work. It was really bad. And the, and the fun thing about when theaters experiment and try things with your script, listener, and it really doesn't work, is that the reviewers come in and they think you wrote it that way. Mm. And I'm going, no, it was the director's choice. But I said you could try it. So I can't complain, except when I'm on this podcast. But you're not going to tell anyone, are you, <laughs> that I'm bitching <laughs> about another theater. I really like those people, if you're listening. That's good. That's good. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll just edit to that part, right? Not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll put the bad stories out there. People. That's right. That's right. Well, as a final little anecdote, Kevin, uh, as you're speaking to the Kevin Ferguson fans out there, uh, I think they're all clamoring to oh, know. I think both of you are in the room listening to me right now. But well, <laughs> well, then we are interested to know, is there any new play idea you got building? Are you writing something at the moment? Oh, God. Um. I'm always writing stuff. So, uh, well, there's the stuff that no one's going to see because I start writing it and I hate it and I put it in a drawer and it'll never be seen again. And I'm still <sighs> revising a thing with feathers and spinning Jenny. 
Um, and I have one, five new plays that I'm working on, sort of different things bubbling up. So we'll see if any of them come to fruition or not. You can't give us a taste of just one of them, yeah. something. Wet our appetites, our palates. Come on. Give okay. Us well, all right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one, but it's not, it's really not people who are like, Oh, next year, Lennox is like, no, it's, it's going to be away. But there's, there's, a, there's a story that I'm wrestling with. Um, there's a, an I, I, island, um, like maybe even as long ago as 50 to 100 years ago, they were still doing this, where um, in Ireland, um, this village, if there were any, any guys in the village that had a conflict with each other, they would stick each of them on a boat, row them out to this island, dump them on the island, and then take the boats away. And they were not allowed to come back to the village until they'd settled whatever differences they had however they could. And I'm like, huh, that, that's an interesting idea for a play for me is, okay, you get these two guys and you row them out to an island and you dump them there with some food and a lot of whiskey, apparently. They jumped a lot of whiskey on them and they couldn't leave until whatever their problem was was solved. And I was like, well, that's, that's, that'd be kind of an interesting uh, story idea. So I'm intrigued already. With that yeah. one. Mike wouldn't like it though. He's only a Bud Light man. Actually, Miller Lite. Miller Lite. Miller Lite. Right there, Bud Lite. If you're gonna, if you're gonna rag me, Jason, get it right. <laughs> Water beer, either way. <laughs> oh, Miller Lite. Look, we, this is not the direction. This is not what we're talking about here. You're not here to rag Mike. No, it's a good problem. role for me and Caleb, essentially, because we're both like whiskey. Just, um, just, just put a loaf of bread in a blender, and there you go. Okay. Well, <laughs> thank you, Kevin, for your time. It's been lovely. <laughs> But no, seriously, Kevin, uh, th- we thank you for your time. And um, it's definitely been a great conversation to have because I think many people really don't consider playwriting or the art that goes into it. So they just assume, oh, a play is just suddenly created when in actuality, that is not it at all. No, so, not at all. It's a very hard and arduous process, as at all, all of theater. I mean, the same thing happens when people go see a show and they go, oh, they just got it. And they're not considering the five weeks of rehearsals we had to build it up. So, And also, too, I was going to say what what Kevin was saying too, as well. Like, you know, if, if they watch a show and it's a bad choice and they go, Oh, that's what the writer intended when he wrote it too. Um, I think it's also the sort of same way when you see a show, it's like, yeah, if the show is great, you only remember three aspects of it. If it's bad, they've got like eight people they want to pick on how it's bad. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. sort of like, yeah, it's always the process of not looking at all the pieces that went into it. Well, it's the same so. thing as if you've written a show and the actor uh, can't get the lines right. You just sit there in the audience and you're like, that's not what I, and then if they got the lines wrong, but the audience likes it, you're like, that's, that's exactly what I wrote. There you go. But if the audience Mm -hmm. is like, I don't understand. You're like, why can't they remember my words? Why? Why? (laughs) So again, happy to steal from actors too, when they come up with a line that I like better than what I wrote. That's right. Happy accident. Well, once again, thank you, Kevin, for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Jason, thank you for co-hosting with me here. I can As be, always, I can, man. I can, awesome. I can be had. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll had you again in, yes. in the future, hopefully. I'm yeah. sure you'll be on future episodes as they come. So thank you all for listening and uh, definitely catch us on the next one. Take care.